Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th of March 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Fantastic to be with you, Mike. Uh, and uh, we have Vanessa Bailey from Damascus, as usual, by video link. Now, we're going to start off uh, with France, of course. And yesterday was, uh, well, all kinds of hell going on as far as the French uh, were concerned. Uh, let's bring the map on screen. Uh, something like 300 protests around the country, the, the red dots representing just some of them. Um, uh, right across the country. Uh, and uh, well, most of the mainstream press suggesting that this is all about uh, protest against the uh, what they're describing as unpopular pension reforms. But as we mentioned on last Friday's program, uh, that was the pension reform certainly started something, but it was the government's reaction to the, the, the protests uh, that really kicked people off. So let's just remind ourselves what Elizabeth Bourne did last week. Uh, she invoked at uh, Macron's behest Article 49.3 of the French Constitution. And if we just remind ourselves what that was about, uh, it's about forcing uh, a bill through Parliament without a vote. Uh, so it allows the Prime Minister, after deliberation by the Council of Ministers, to force a bill through the Assemblée Nationale with no vote. Uh, the only alternative to prevent the bill from passing then is to overthrow the government. Uh, when the Prime Minister triggers this procedure, MPs have the option of tabling a vote of no confidence within 24 hours. If a majority vote is obtained, the law is rejected and the government collapses. Uh, the next logical move would be for the president to dissolve the assembly uh, and call early elections. Now, there were two uh, votes of no conf confidence brought, or uh, motion to censure. Of, of no problem, yes, brought, brought uh, one by the uh, opposition and one by Marine Le Pen. Uh, both were defeated, but the one that was brought by this sort of so called moderate opposition uh, were, I think it was only nine votes in it or something like that. So it was very, very close. Um, uh, and, and Macron's party didn't even show up. Uh, Le Renaissance didn't even bother to show up. That tells you how uh, much democracy is thriving yes, in France. Yes, so so the pension issue clearly at the center of this, but the bigger issue of democracy, uh, largely ignored by the mainstream press as they're discussing this, uh, that is the main thing. And, and on the back of very unpopular uh, vaccine mandates, the vaccine passport protests, Mike, we reported on that last year. Those were raging for weeks. And uh, so this, is the, this isn't the first time they've invoked the, uh, the 49th uh, three uh, in the Constitution. So he's used it multiple times and the people are absolutely fed up. Right, right. So uh, so this was what happened yesterday then. Uh, people out in Paris, I believe. I believe, Vanessa, this was the Place de la Bastille. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Huge crowds. I think there were reported to have been more than 800,000. I mean, just incredible. I was there in 2019 when the Gilles Jones protest started. And even back then, you know, 50,000, 100,000 was considered massive, 800,000. And this is across the country, Mike. This isn't only in Paris. Well, indeed. Uh, so then on the motorways, we had uh, the farmers coming out and setting fire to hay bales, blocking the traffic uh, on motorways, A roads, right across the country. Um, and uh, well, then we had, uh, we've got a little bit of video here from Marseille. And in a second, Vanessa will tell us uh, uh, what they're shouting, but uh, let's have a listen to this.
So, uh, Vanessa, what were they? Uh, what were they chanting? I couldn't actually hear that one ah. very well. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, no problem. Uh, but then, as the day wore on, uh, more fires started. So, well, this is Bar Bordeaux Town Hall. Um, so the mayor mm. is probably a pretty unhappy person today. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, there's a little bit of video showing uh, them burning the Bordeaux Town Hall. But perhaps uh, the the most, um, well, not sure how to describe it, but <laughs> let's just go back to the Place de la Bastille and what happened later on uh, at night. We've got a little okay. bit of video from this and then we'll tell you what they were saying. <laughs> Vanessa. Okay. <laughs> this one I can translate. It basically is saying this is where we uh, beheaded Louis XIV and Macron, Macron, we can start again. So that's a fairly clear message. A very clear message. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know if you saw uh, Charlie Hebdo, but Charlie Hebdo had this. Uh, so let's bring uh, Charlie Hebdo. Uh, they had a little animated thing that they tweeted out uh, yesterday. Uh, there you go, Macron's head uh, coming off uh, from the guillotine, and they're asking, "Will it rebound?" So <laughs> cruel, cruel satire. Now, well, cruel satire, but uh, I do wonder how much satire is in it, uh, Vanessa. I mean, is this how how serious are people here? Is this a real threat, uh, or are they being satirical, or or what's what do you think about no, the French mood? Well, the French mood, I mean, he's he's got the lowest approval rating, 35 years, which is 28%. Um, people are uh, voting to in, in huge majorities to impeach him. Um, there were other scenes where they were actually singing uh, the Katyusha and calling, I think, tongue-in-cheek for Putin to come and rec uh, uh, rescue them from their authoritarian dictatorship. You know, this is this is actually, as I said, this has been going on since 2019, but it has its roots back in the early 2000s when austerity measures started to creep in. And there was a clear class divide in France that just got wider and wider and wider until uh, Macron came in and, and basically, you know, it has forever, ever since been running it for the, for the globalist cabal. And people are sick of it. And as you said, it's not only about pensions. This is about pretty much everything, including Ukraine, of course, um, the supplying of weapons to Ukraine while imposing austerity measures. And, and Macron basically coming out and saying that he agrees with the people, but basically tough luck. I mean, that's equivalent to, as you said this morning, Mike, let them eat cake. Yes. A great comment from the chat box. Uh, Pandora Chaser says, uh, new headline for Charlie Hebdo, bounce back better. Bounce back better, I okay. Like I like okay, well, of course, uh, King Charles was supposed to make a visit to uh, France yeah. uh, in the next coming couple of weeks. Uh, that has now been postponed, so uh, Emmanuel Macron here. Uh, I'm not sure that this photograph was taken yesterday. It could be because he, I believe he's not really too keen for his face to be seen at the moment in public. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Emmanuel Macron has uh, issued a, a request to the British government that Prince, uh, King Charles does not go to France uh, in the... Uh, next uh, little while uh, because he thinks it's too dangerous so he's saying no 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 can't do that um, 
But look, uh, let's uh, let's. Uh, I mean, obviously, this these protests. Uh, there's still a few things happening today. It's not anywhere on the scale of, of yesterday, but there's still some stuff happening today. People clearly extremely motivated in France at the moment, um, and but a lot of the there was quite a lot of the the, the video footage showing quite brutal treatment uh, of the protesters by mm. uh, some of the militarized police, um, but. Okay, the militarized police have got their batons and their their shields and their body armor and so on. But what about the what about the day to day gendarme, uh, Vanessa? Well, I mean, the day to day gendarme have had a hard time of it since, uh, as I said, the Gilets Jaunes protest started back in two thousand and nineteen. I remember from memory, um, and uh, they've been um, th there's been a massive increase in suicide amongst the uh, regular gendarme. And you also have to remember that many of the kind of balaclava face hidden officers that you're seeing on the streets beating people up or, um, or even using the LBD, LBD um, launchers, the, the kind of rubber bullet or the encirclement grenades that can take off people's hands and, and seriously damage limbs if they're thrown into a crowd environment are private security agents. That was proven back in 2019. And in, in a lot of the footage, you see them wearing jeans and then just a black jacket, the helmet, all, all of the um, weapons that they've been given. Um, but their faces are hidden. The, the usual police, you won't see them um, like this. And of course, the, the, the rate of suicide has been on the increase. Um, for some time amongst the French police forces, but since the start of the 2019 protests, um, it has dramatically increased. Um, and so this was from Euronews in 2019. Um, so far this year, uh, 28 French police officers have committed suicide compared to 14 for the same period last year. Um, overall, 35 took their own lives in 2018. And I think in this year, in one month, there were 12 suicides. Over the past five years, an average of 44 members of the police forces committed suicide every year in France. A peak of 55 was registered in 2014. So actually, it was basically from when Macron um, came to power. And this is one of the, uh, the main police unions, BIGI, um, talking about more than 100 sorry, suicides um, since the since they registered their complaint to the to to Castaneuve, basically in Castaner, um, the the ministers of um, uh, interior um, in France, um, and basically they're saying, you know, we're asking you to go to um, to kill yourself at work um, to to commit suicide. So this was in I think this was in 2022, Mike. I can't yes, read that's the right. yes, date yes. from here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a major issue. The, the, the media is playing it that basically the gilets jaunes are, are forcing the police to commit suicide. They're calling for them to commit suicide. This is absolute nonsense. What it actually is, is the genuine police forces, many of whom have been joining the protesters, by the way, in the last few days, alongside the, the fire brigades, um, were forced to turn against their own people by the, the, the kind of the globalist cabal that is running France right now and were forced into state-sanctioned violence against their own people um, and, and were very poorly organized, poorly paid. Much of the overtime they were forced to do to deal with the protest was unpaid. 
um, quite incredible, really. Uh, yes, and we're seeing protests now spread. Obviously, we've had the, the Dutch farmers. Uh, we've had protests mm. in Germany. Uh, I wonder, is Italy going to get uh, join the club in, in the not too distant future? Perhaps, perhaps. I think um, the other thing I noticed is they said that the police were uh, having to face smaller groups of protesters who were more mobile and moving around mm. a lot and having trouble reacting to that. So the, the protesting's adapted um, to some of the police ta tactics. And before we go, Vanessa, there was a special detachment. You might, may or may not be familiar, but I was told there was a special detachment, like a special territorial detachment, like a unit of police that are more violent than the other regulars. Yeah. And that started under yeah. the Gilets jaunes. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And they tend to wear the blue armbands and the blue um, band on their helmet. Now, I can't, I can't remember if it's the SBU. I think it's the SBU. Um, they were, I, I mean, when I went to one of the main protests to commemorate all of the injured up until that point, and we got um, kettled in the Place de la République, and we were being forced into the Place, where, of course, then they would fire tear gas. And then once people started trying to break out, they would charge with batons and the LBDs and the grenades. And I actually had an elderly lady with me and a tourist that were trying to leave. And I remember speaking to one of the SBU police and, and explaining it to him. And he just looked at me. He said, put on force. I don't care. Like, we're pushing everyone. And then they literally did. Even those that were collapsing from the tear gas, the, the paramedics were not allowed in. I was told by women there that if that they would sometimes kettle them for up to six hours. And there was one woman who told me, you know, they don't even allow us out to go to the toilet. We have to do it in front of the police. So th this is, you know, complete humiliation tactics here. Yes. OK, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, OK, let's uh, let's move on then to um, uh, she in Moscow. Now, this ended this visit ended on Wednesday, of course. Uh, we didn't uh, see the conclusion of it before we uh, had the news on Wednesday. So I just wanted to add a couple of uh, bits uh, to what we had uh, on Wednesday. So uh, this was the um, the comments of Vladimir, Vladimir Putin at the press conference at the end. As of, as of the end of the first of three quarters of 2022, the share of the ruble and the yuan in mutual commercial transactions reach 65% and continues to grow, uh, which allows us to protect mutual trade from the influence of third countries and negative trends on global currency markets. The timing of that is spectacular because, of course, uh, we have more and more evidence of uh, Western banking system and Western currencies under massive stress at the moment. We'll be talking about uh, Deutsche Bank towards the end of the program. Um, and uh, so I thought that was that was quite an interesting uh, observation and development. And of course, sanctions have been driving this to a large degree. And oil uh, oil supplies from Russia to China are way up. Yes. So they're almost to the point where they, Russia said they've recovered or they've almost recovered all their lost trade uh, from European sanctions. So that's, that's also a big economic uh, indicator. Yes. Uh, but the one thing that I wanted to uh, highlight was the China-Ukraine peace plan, because uh, China has uh, announced a plan for Ukraine. Uh, and uh, well, this is basically, I'm just going to cover the, the, the main points of it and then ask for a comment from, uh, from Patrick and Vanessa here. Uh, so first of all, the key point was respecting the sovereignty of all countries. Uh, second point was abandoning Cold War mentality. Uh, the third point was ceasing hostilities, uh, then resuming peace talks, uh, resolving humanitarian crisis, 
uh, protecting civilians and prisoners of war, uh, then keeping nuclear power plants safe, uh, reducing strategic risks. And by that, they're talking about nuclear risks in particular. And of course, uh, it was interesting that Putin had, uh, we're going to be talking about depleted uranium a little bit later again. Uh, Putin had framed the depleted uranium issue as a nuclear issue. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, then facilitating grain exports, uh, stopping unilateral sanctions, uh, and keeping industrial uh, and supply chains stable, and finally, promoting post-conflict uh, reconstruction. Uh, so, Vanessa, what were your thoughts on, on this deal? I mean, the, 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 I, I actually recommend everybody reads the full text of it because the, the, you know, just just uh, listing the headings doesn't go uh, into it. You know, we really should go into more depth on it if we had time. But uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Um, while while the UK is talking about um, criminally supplying depleted uranium. Um, warheads to Ukraine for use against probably um, the civilian areas of Donbass. Um, here you have China that has already brokered a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia coming in with what is, I mean, there's n not a single point on there that you can argue with, right? If you are genuinely looking for, to resolve um, conflict in this world. And, and what is shocking is the, the absolute um, opposite that is being presented by the West. The West has never, all it has done is renege on any form of negotiation or peaceful resolution of this conflict. Right? And here is China presenting something that we should be demanding from every single one of our leaders in the EU, the UK and the US, Canada, etc. We're not getting it. No, indeed. And in fact, the Western response to this was, was appalling. And tepid as well. <laughs> An uneasiness in Washington, D.C., mm. according to sources at the State mm. Department. So what I, what I think is extraordinary here, and of course this is going to upset Americans because they're completely g gone into China phobia mode mm. uh, in the last couple of years. But um, there's a vacuum, Mike. Uh, because the U.S. and Britain's policy, NATO's policy, is no no peace negotiations. Didn't Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, say now is not the time for peace? Yes. Not until there's a victory in Ukraine. Okay, so they've said it right there. So there's going to be no peace talks. So China's moved into the vacuum. Okay, and what what did America used to do for years? They were regarded as the uh, arbiter of negotiations of peace because most countries trusted them. Not all, but but many did. Mm. Uh, but now that doesn't seem to be the case. They're not even available for peace talks. China's taken the opportunity. They've moved in. They're presenting themselves as an alternative, and they're they've offered to Zelensky. Uh, yeah, we're going to arrange a phone call. When is that phone call going to happen? I don't know. They were expecting Xi to go to Kiev for the photo op and with Zelensky. And of course, the Chinese delegation is like, we're not going to be used for a photo op and right. we're not going to show up in Kiev. So it's non-starter. So they've gone to Moscow, the other counterparties. The United States, if they want to approach, certainly they can. But the problem, Mike, is, and Vanessa and everybody listening, the U.S. cannot actually be um, a party to any negotiations because they're they're directly fueling and arming the conflict. They're not a neutral party. They're a belligerent. So is Britain. So that that's the fundamental problem with this. So this reminds me of uh, the Syrian war, where 
uh, the, the West and John Kerry and everyone was chomping at the bit to have peace talks in Switzerland. And what happened? Russia, uh, Damascus, and other parties put a coalition together, including uh, the moderate rebels, so to speak, and they had the Astana conferences, the Astana process, and what happened there, and that drove Washington crazy because the center of gravity geopolitically drifted to a towards Asia, away from the away from the Atlantic, away from Switzerland to Asia. This is exactly what's happening here. This is a fundamental uh, paradigm shift in geopolitics right now. We're witnessing it once again. And uh, Vanessa, just very briefly, I mean, I just want to come back to the to point number one, respecting everybody's sovereignty. Um, this is something that, of course, we're not doing uh, in the West. No, absolutely not. And I mean, you know, this is what we were talking about uh, last week as well. The fact that President Assad is basically going against the, the advice, let's say, of Russia, China, Iran, reference a meeting with Erdogan, but but Assad is saying, no, you know, Erdogan is not meeting uh, the guarantees that I need him to meet. Therefore, I refuse to give him the PR opportunity of a meeting with myself or even a foreign minister meeting or an intelligence chief meeting right now. Uh, and Russia, China and Iran, who are the, the mainstay of the alliance that has sort of helped Syria keep itself afloat for the last 12 years, are accepting it because it's a sovereign nation, a sovereign government that is making sovereign decisions about its uh, territorial and and that is how international law should be applied. You know, we were talking about this, Mike, and and we don't apply it anywhere in the West. Nowhere, nowhere do we respect uh, territorial integrity or sovereignty. Indeed, and, and also the, the big criticism from the West is China's acting it in its own selfish interest. Excuse me very much, but that's what great powers do in international relations. When do great powers not act in their interest? They act every single time. So no surprise there. Yes. Okay. So let's move on to Ukraine. And we'll start off with this article from TASS, uh, because obviously uh, the issue of Bakhmut uh, continues to be an issue. And uh, well, this headline uh, is quoting the uh, head of the Wagner Group. Uh, so Ukraine deployed over 80,000 servicemen around uh, Bakhmut, uh, according to the Wagner Group. So let's just look at some of the te text. The Ukrainian armed forces have gathered over 80,000 servicemen uh, around Bakhmut. Uh, this is according to the founder of the Wagner Group uh, on a, in a video we published yesterday on his Telegram channel. As of today, the quote says, the enemy has deployed more than 80,000 around Bakhmut. The grouping is in Seversk, uh, Slovansk, uh, Kramatorsk and so on uh, and he went on to say the Ukrainians received a very large uh, amount of various NATO equipment, various armoured vehicles, Leopard tanks which everyone is talking about and prepared reserves of about 200,000 people. So it's looking like uh, Ukraine is going to attempt to uh, push back somewhat on the Bakhmut situation if these figures are true. But now on the issue of uh, NATO equipment I just want to put this uh, image on screen. I want to say thank you very much to the person who sent this to me. Uh, this is a photograph from the border crossing between uh, uh, Slovakia and Ukraine. Um, and uh, I believe that is a uh, Polish uh, self-propelled um, gun. And uh, well, that, there were several of them, quite a number of them on uh, trucks uh, heading by train into Ukraine. So more NATO 
uh, arms and armaments going in, probably on a daily basis, but it was just a, uh, I was very pleased to receive uh, uh, documentary evidence of it. And, and most of this is going to end up a, a scrap metal, uh, unfortunately. Yes. And it's sorry, but that's just that, a, that is that's, absolutely that's what's the case. been happening for the last twelve months. Uh, but the question is, if there are eighty thousand troops uh, gathered around uh, Bakhmut, uh, ready to take part in some kind of counteroffensive, uh, what's the mood uh, within Zelensky's troops? That's the big. That's the big question, Mike. What is the morale like on the Ukrainian side? Reports that we're seeing is that it's really bad. It's never been worse, and that the, so what you're looking at here is the third army. They've they've the, the first army was already expended by the spring, by the end of the spring of last year. Mm -hmm. Then came the second army and a whole new batch of NATO equipment plus a new uh, shipments of mercenaries, foreign fighters, contractors, and so forth. And that has more or less been extinguished or uh, turned into casualties or cycled out as of the fall. Now you're looking at the third army, okay? So they're really at the bottom of the barrel right now. So Zelensky has been deployed to do a PR trip to the front line. We've got footage of this. There's no subtitles, okay? We'll play a minute or two. This, this mic, uh, I'm gonna say this is the powerful, powerful piece of footage. Notice everybody when you watch this, notice the looks on the soldier's face when Zelensky is passing out little uh, medals and various uh, things to the quote heroes. Um, look, at, look at their faces and look at how nervous he is. And uh, we'll come back and discuss this. Mm -hmm. Watch this powerful footage. Дякуємо Схід України. Бачили сьогодні багато всього зруйнованого навколо, але найголовніше це перемога. Після перемоги точно все відбудуємо. І така складна у вас доля, складна доля, але така історична захистити нашу землю і повернути все в Україну для наших дітей. Я вам дуже вдячен кожному і кожній, хто захищає. Також дуже дякуємо і низький уклін всім тим героям, вашим близьким, побратимам, яких втратили ви на, на Сході, в цілому, на цій війні. One thing I noticed there, that a lot of them weren't giving eye contact to Zelensky, and I thought that was quite telling. Totally staged, but you could see the look on their face. Very uncomfortable exchange. And, and also women, uh, they made a point to show that they have women on the front line. That to me, some people might say that's valiant in the West. I see that as a, a form of desperation, but that's my opinion. Vanessa. Also, it's very weird. I've watched that about three times now, but the lip syncing between Zelensky speaking and the actual the, the voice that you're hearing is very weirdly out of sync. Did you notice at least yeah. a couple of times? 
it, it could he have stops, been a, and a, it's a almost like blanket. did they do a voiceover or I, was it no it, it happens a, two or three times though pat it might it might be the it's, degraded quality of the video possibly i'm yeah, not sure yeah, yeah it's it's hard to say it's hard to say good point uh so um but it goes on. So, oh, it goes on. So now this is a video that was posted by one of the Ukrainian units in the Bakhmut area um, that claimed that they've been totally abandoned by their commanders and by their superiors. And there's subtitles on this. And I, I'm going to say if we can play as much of this as possible, it is uh, absolutely jaw-dropping. Uh, watch this, this clip. 57th Brigade, 34th Bad. 17 числа забросили на позиции в окружении без поддержки артиллерии без э, связи э, просто на броне закинули выходили полями точки эвакуации нет э, связи нет свои же крылья со всех сторон чтобы ну, может из-за того что связь но не было это прошло буквально два дня нас пытаются послать туда же рассказывая нам сказки что позиции заняты что позиции держатся что работает артиллерия но зная всю ситуацию мы в это не верим Мы отказываемся заступать без поддержки брони, артиллерии, разведки, без карт минных полей, потому что выходили по растяжкам и всему остальному. У нас есть связь, должна быть, коридор для выхода, средства эвакуации. Поэтому мы отказываемся без этого всего выполнять свои прямые обязанности. Теперь скажут ребята, что все думают об этом. Говорите. Любой, 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 кто там, любой. Я не доверяю. Я не доверяю. Я не иду. Нема доверия до командования частины. Опять хочуть нас надурить и хочуть кинуть нас в мясорубку. И это в этой бригаде не первый раз. А это уже пошло уже в 8 или 9. Сами точно не знаем. Мы не доверяем. Не доверяем. Не доверяем. So, so even if let's let's say, uh, I mean, we're not certain that the the Wagner report is is you know whether he's telling the truth or whether he's playing some kind of mind games or whatever it is. So, but let's say there are eighty thousand uh, troops waiting to to for some kind of counteroffensive in Bakhmut. Then the question is, what is their mindset? Are they uh, actually engaged in this? Are they going to fight or are they going to run? What type of troops are they? What did we just see there? We saw a lot of men in their 40s, 50s, a couple that looked like they might be in their early 60s. So, I mean, these are not your regular uh, top top line units. And so this is a lot of what they have. Maybe the, we see a lot of reports of press gangs 
going around Ukraine mm -hmm. in the last month or so. Right. So they've been snatching up people, throwing them a uniform on them, maybe giving them a little bit of basic training and throwing them out to the front line. Is this where all these big numbers are coming from? Now, I've also heard, and we'll talk about Poland in a minute, that there are a large number of Polish uh, regulars who are now uh, in the field and fighting and have been uh, for months around Kharkiv. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Polish situation in a minute. A second, Vanessa. Yeah, I was just saying that I read a couple of reports this morning and yesterday that the life expectancy of a Ukrainian soldier is now four hours. Four hours. Just let that sink in while the UK, the US and the EU are pushing these guys to their death, to their to their certain death, right? I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's I, I don't know, I just, I find it, so I found that video so heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. Yes. Very sad. Indeed. Okay, so uh, let's move on then. Yeah, so where's all the money going that's going to give? That's a good question, isn't it? it <laughs> so uh, on the question of Poland, let's take a look at this. So a statement was made by the Polish ambassador to France, and uh, I tweeted this out. We didn't have time to get the translation, but um, this is what we're saying here. Uh, when NATO's Ukrainian meat grinder runs out of men, Washington is preparing Poland as their next round of fodder. Poland is now amassing an army of 300,000. That's what they are wanting to amass, they say, the Polish uh, representatives, intending to fight Russia in 2024 in the event of the defeat of the armed forces of Ukraine. And here's the quote here. This was, uh, this was the meaning of the statement made earlier by Ambassador of Poland uh, to France, uh, Jan uh, Emmerich uh, Rusch. Good luck with that one. Rushinsky. Okay. Um, if Ukraine fails to defend its independence, we'll have no choice. We will be forced to enter into the conflict, said the diplomat on air. Uh, of the LCI TV channel here. This was just a few days ago. Uh, what what do you notice about that statement? It fails to defend its independence. I'm going to ask the question, is Ukraine actually independent right now? And I'm going to say it's not. It's absolutely not. It has 0% sovereignty, bottom of the sovereignty index. And that's got nothing to do with Russia? No, this um, doesn't. And so let's come on to the depleted uranium issue then. Sure, sure. And I want to make a comment about the Polish situation after this because right. I think it's pertinent. But so you've seen the reports of, uh, from Britain, uh, Russian ministers saying that uh, really decrying, calling out Britain shipping DU munitions uh, into Ukraine. Now, you remember, Mike, back in May, we reported this story um, at the UK column here. This is an excellent report by the French journalist Freddy Ponton. This is an exhaustive study of all the weapons that, have, that went in by May um, into Ukraine. And the biggest uh, offender on depleted uranium, it's pretty certain, confirmed that France has been trafficking DU uh, munitions into Ukraine now for the better part of a year. Britain as well, within the NLAW and anti-tank systems, many of them use, including the Javelin systems, many of them use DU rounds, okay? So France bought a bunch of Javelins from the US years ago. They immediately shipped those uh, directly into Ukraine uh, last spring. So there's depleted uranium there from France, uh, the United States, uh, other guns and uh, uh, surface to airs and mistral systems, all, all sorts use DU. So this is a really good article. If you want to go and pull this up, anybody who's researching, it's got all of the source documents in there. And basically it's a chapter and verse, all the 
uh, DU weaponry that has been shipped into Ukraine uh, in their, at least the first part of the conflict. So that's well documented. So Britain's now has this next round, and we'll go to the next uh, image here. And so this is the uh, Dutch journalist. I think she's on the ground, uh, and Don Bass, he's done amazing work, uh, Sonia uh, van den Indien. Uh, the Western world is out of control and doesn't seem to realize the danger they pose to themselves and, of course, Russia. It's pure criminal to use depleted uranium, but that's what they did in Iraq. Uh, they have to be on trial, always leaders, she said. Now, Yugoslavia, there was also a lot of DU munitions used in Yugoslavia by NATO forces. So this isn't the first time that this type of toxic uh, radiological completely dangerous uh, material has been dumped into a battle zone. They did it in Yugoslavia uh, with, with the NATO takedown of that country. So she mentioned Iraq as well. I think in Syria, there was probably many reports of depleted uranium being used by some of the parties there, the terrorist uh, factions and so forth. Mm. Um, I don't know what Israel uses, but um, I'm sure that they might use these as well. So, but uh, this is a big problem. You have all this agricultural land, grain supplies, um, who's going to map this out? Who's going to uh, put in restricted areas? Who's going to clean it up? Is the water supply, the food supply, all coming out of Ukraine? Does the West care about this? Well, they should care because we should not forget that, of course, Ukraine, ex well, under normal circumstances, Ukraine exports a significant proportion of what it grows. Uh, most of uh, Ukrainian agriculture has now been bought up by Western corporations, which means Ukrainian food is going to be finding its way onto Western dinner plates. Is it going to be contaminated, Ukrainian food finding its way onto Western dinner plates? Or Donetsk and Lugansk food, because a lot of these munitions from the West are going to end up in the Donbass yes. as it stands right now. So that's a big big problem. They don't have any problem dumping this stuff in what's now the Russian Federation. And I think that's very cynical, a very cynical move uh, by the Western countries. Where are the environmental protesters? Where is Greta Thunberg uh, on this? Vanessa. Well, of course, not forgetting that today is the anniversary of the NATO bombing of Serbia, where, of course, they did also use uh, depleted uranium. And just in Syria, the bombing, the, the, the publicized or the admitted use of depleted uranium was in 2015 when the U.S. used it to bomb an alleged ISIS convoy. Now, they could have destroyed that convoy with ordinary missiles. So why did they use depleted uranium? And as you said, the residue of that depleted uranium remains in Syria. No one has cleaned it up. Whoever um, cleared up the scrap metal from the, the bombing campaign against ISIS, which is known to be a U.S. proxy anyway, um, are going to be contaminated. I mean, it's completely, it's totally, it's, it's between nuclear and bioweapon because, of course, what does it do for generations? Uh, it ensures birth defects, deformations. Look at what, what's going on in Iraq since it was used there. I mean, it's, it's utterly reprehensible. It's disgusting. It is, it's a byproduct of the, uh, the uranium enrichment process. Mm. It's stuff that should be stored as nuclear waste, but because it's twice as heavy and twice as dense as lead, they can put a smaller amount so they can reduce the size of the munitions but make them more powerful, and it cuts through tanks and steel and armor-piercing like a hot knife through butter. And it's also very lucrative in terms of uh, arms sales if you're in the business of packaging and selling this stuff. so. Yes. Okay. Well, let's move on then to uh, the pipelines. And uh, of course, Seymour Hirsch has brought a new uh, article out. 
Yeah, this was on his Substack uh, recently. This is quite an amazing uh, story here. This is from a few days ago. So uh, Seymour Hirsch is basically saying this is his latest release on this. He's saying that there is a cover-up. You remember the story a few days ago or last week, Mike, that, uh, or was it two weeks ago, a pro-Ukrainian rogue cell. Uh, that's who blew up uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. It could have been, not even, we don't know who, they rented a boat in Poland, all very mysterious. I'm waiting for Daniel Craig to come uh, abseiling down from a helicopter on that one. But uh, here's Seymour Hirsch. So this is what he's saying here. This is the takeaway. The CIA asked this month to collaborate with German intelligence to produce a pipeline explosions cover story to, quote, pulse the system. So that would have been in direct reaction to Seymour Hersh's original article, I believe, which came out the end of January. Yes. So it's been, you know, a little over a month or a month and a half or something like that. So here's what he's saying. The Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, had flown to Washington uh, during this period with no members of the German press on board his special transport, no former di dinner scheduled, and the two world leaders were not slated to conduct a press conference, as what routinely happens at such high-profile meetings. Instead, it was later reported that Biden and Schultz had an 80-minute meeting with no aides present for much of the time. And they go on. Uh, here, there have been no statements or written understandings made public since then by either government, but I was told by someone with access to diplomatic intelligence that there was a discussion of pipeline expose, my expose, Hirsch says, as a result, certain elements of the Central Intelligence Agency were asked to prepare a cover story in collaboration with German intelligence that would provide the American German press with an alternative version of destruction of Nord Stream 2. Yes. Uh, and then it uh, goes on to say, in the words of the intelligence community, the agency was to pulse the system in an effort to discount the claim that Biden had ordered the pipeline's uh, uh, destruction. So. Uh, this is obviously Hirsch um, finding a way to, he's, he's bringing new in, uh, information forward, um, which is demonstrating how the uh, other certain interests are trying to uh, cover this story up. And of course, we've got the yacht story. We've got all kinds of stories coming out at the moment over this. So what does that mean? Well, here's the original story in the New York Times, Mike. <clears throat> Intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian group sabotages pipeline. Look at these three stooges at the bottom that authored this thing for the, looks like for the CIA. So what do we call this? Well, good old fashioned fake, fake news. news. There you are. Um, so, uh, well, let's end this segment then uh, with, well, ice cream. With ice cream and would you believe it, Ben and Jerry's, <clears throat> Ben Cohen, who is a raging progressive liberal, uh -huh. total Democrat, Biden supporter. They come out with a new ice cream here against the U.S. military support for Ukraine. Can you believe this? So look at this. This is the new flavor of Ben & Jerry's. Honestly, I want to get my hands on this one. It's called No Ukrainian Dough. Chunky Surrender Monkey. It's got money in the background. So I, I love this, especially coming from woke Ben & Jerry's. I'm, I, I'm totally supporting Ben & Jerry's now. Okay. Okay, let's move on to uh, Syria. And uh, Vanessa, we mentioned briefly uh, on Wed Monday or Wednesday uh, the fact that uh, President Assad had visited to uh, UAE for the first time in quite some time, uh, at least in the sense of an official visit. Uh, so uh, let's bring him on screen here and maybe you could uh, tell us a bit more in, in detail of what happened. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, this was an extraordinary meeting. As you said uh, this morning, the Western media downplayed it as being a pretty standard meeting. But as I was discussing with Kavor Kalmasian this morning, the, the president's plane and how wonderful it is to see Syrian airlines back on the runway in UAE. Um, here he is being um, met by Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al Nahyan. Um, but the plane itself was actually escorted onto the runway in the air by UAE fighter jets. And as Kivork pointed out to me this morning, it's the high likelihood that those jets were American. Um, you know, the UAE, uh, Abu Dhabi in particular, is, is an absolute headquarters in the Middle East of um, American, Israeli and UK intelligence, including many of the intelligence agencies that were behind, for example, the creation of the White Helmet that were embedded with the armed groups inside Syria and produced the majority of the propaganda to criminalize the Syrian government. That's analysis, research and knowledge established by a suspected MI6 agent himself, Alistair Harris. They're based in, in um, UAE, so is uh, Good Harbor International. Uh, James LeMessurier, the, the founder of the White Helmets, who was also working for ARK at the time, um, also had a consultancy position at Good Harbor International that was started up by Richard Clark um, of the Bush era, of course. So quite extraordinary to see President Assad received in such a way in UAE, who also have very close ties with Israel. Um, of course, particularly uh, in the devastation of Yemen since 2015. And, and here we have um, the First Lady, Asma al-Assad, who accompanied her husband on this trip and, and sort of performed a lot of uh, duties herself while she was there. And he brought what, what a, in Syria they're now calling um, Team Assad, uh, the selection of ministers, including finance, economy, foreign ministers, defense ministers, the same team came that had previously gone to Moscow for the president's meetings with President Putin. Um, and quite extraordinary trade deals uh, were put together. And if we, in a second, we'll look at the video. But what I want to point out about the, the conversation between the two presidents, um, people would expect maybe after 12 years war, hybrid war, sanctions, the theft of resources, um, the annexation, occupation of Syrian territory. I don't know how many, perhaps up to 40 uh, American military bases on Syrian soil. One might perhaps expect President Assad to be slightly cap in hand and going to these um, nations that were, to some extent, for the UAE, responsible for um, the destruction and the destabilization in Syria. Um, and yet, actually, he's gone very much from a strong position. And when you listen to his language, uh, one has the impression, and I've talked this through with a number of people here, that actually it is uh, the president of UAE who's very slightly on the back foot and who is doing his utmost to reassure President Assad that Syria was missed, that Syria is now back in the brotherhood of Arab nations. And of course, we're hoping that probably the next step will be um, being allowed back into the Arab League. But let's have a look at the video now.
عن سوريا ترجع إلى محيطها العربي إلى أخوانها العربي نحن نحاول نبني معكم علاقة ومج سور وتقوية هذا الجسر بيننا وبين أهلنا في سوريا فائدة الطرفين أحسن الله عزاكم في أهلنا في سوريا وإن شاء الله بقيادتكم وبهمة السوريين هذه تحدي بتحدونه اخوانكم في الامارات قلبا وقالبا معكم شكرا لكم سمو الشيخ من لم يشكر الناس لم يشكر الله وبالتالي لابد من البدء من الشكر السوريين اليوم لما عم يحكوا بعد هالشهر اللي مر بيقول لك الواضح تماما انه طريقه مساعده الامارات مليئه بالمحبه فهذا الشيء اغلى من اي شيء اخر بيتقدم وان شاء الله نحن كمان بدنا نكون اوفياء لهالعلاقه بنفس الطريقة الشيخ زايد الله يرحمه عرفته بمواقف عابرة الوالد هو اللي كان بيعرفه أكثر كانوا مثل أخوة أنا معرفتي فيه باللقاءات القليلة اللي صارت ومنعرفه إنسان طيب ومحبوب وإلى آخره ولكن الآن صرنا بنشوفه بشكل أوضح بنعرف اليوم تماما ما هي الدولة اللي بناها ومن هي العائلة اللي أسسها الله يا أريد أكد بخامة الرئيس أن نحن أخوانكم وأهلكم وهذه بلدك تشرفنا اليوم بوجودك أتمنى إن شاء الله أن تكون زيارة نبني عليها هذا الجسر القوي لبناء علاقات تصب في مصلحة أهلنا هناك شرفتونا يا سيدي Vanessa, did that uh, video come from uh, the Syrian government or was it from UAE? UAE Right <laughs> which is also sort of um, extraordinary because the language, I mean, what we're seeing now, um, the meetings between uh, Xi Jinping and Putin, Assad and Putin, Assad and uh, Bin Zayed, it, you know, the language is quite extraordinary. They're talking of devotion, friendship, family, trust, all the, as, as Patrick said, the vacuum that has been left by the criminality and, and the moral um, depravity of the West is now being filled with something that me personally, I haven't heard for years. Um, and, and literally, I think two days after the president returned from this meeting, um, Syria and Saudi Arabia agreed to reopen embassies um, I've heard that it will be actually after Ramadan, which started uh, yesterday, um, after Eid al-Fitr, which is the celebration for the end of Ramadan. So in about one month, the Saudi embassy, which, you know, this is extraordinary. Saudi Arabia was responsible largely for much of the funding of groups like ISIS inside Syria um, and was absolutely one of the strongest allies of the West in its attempt to... Uh, achieve regime change inside Syria. And here we have Saudi Arabia basically holding out the hand of friendship, not only to Iran, 
Um, but now to Syria, it, it, these are extraordinary times we're going through. Okay, but in the meantime, of course, uh, Israel and the United <laughs> States uh, not so happy about that. So let's start off with Israel then and uh, more bombings. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was on, um, gosh, when was it? I'm losing track of time. Two days ago at about 4 a.m., um, Israel again for the third time since the earthquake attacked uh, Aleppo airport. Um, causing some damage. It was actually more to the perimeter, but there was some small damage to one of the runways. Now, Aleppo Airport, as we've mentioned before, is actually responsible for receiving much of the humanitarian aid for more than 3,000 refugees inside the government-protected areas of Syria. So this is just a video of the actual attack itself. Yeah, so just keep talking. Okay. Many of the... No, a... I mean, many of the... I'm sorry, what? Yeah, just keep talking your way through that. Yes, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so many of the missiles were brought down by the Syrian um, air defense. But what Israel tends to do that people maybe don't understand is that they will fire salvos of missiles that they know um, the air defenses that are being used at the moment. There are other air defense systems that are not being used, that are being kept in abeyance for the... Um, potential for an escalation of conflict with Israel. Um, so the, the air defenses can only bring down a percentage, a fairly large percentage of the missiles, but at least one, two or one or two will hit target. And that's what happened in Aleppo. Um, so what has happened also since the meeting um, in UAE um, there has been a, a sort of a rebellion, both from the UAE and from Jordan, of course, Israel opened its embassy in the UAE in 2021. But here you have the UAE uh, orders its envoy to Israel to not meet with government officials. The UAE, Jordan, Egypt and Morocco are reportedly reconsidering their diplomatic ties with Israel in response to a senior Israeli official claiming that there is no such thing as the Palestinian people at a press conference in Paris. Uh, have I lost you? Have I lost sound? Oh, sorry. Sorry, I do apologize, sorry. Vanessa. Uh, so no, it's we... all right. I didn't. <laughs> um, so you also have the, the Jordanian uh, foreign minister calls on the international community to oppose hate speech against Palestinians. And then if you go to the next slide, Mike, you can see exactly what they're both talking about. Um, Jordan's Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi urged the international community on the 22nd of March to oppose the incitement of hate speech against Palestinians as it fuels violence and results in the violation of human rights. Now, what was he referring to? Um, the disgusting manner of, in, in the statement, uh, sorry, racist ideologies conveyed in a disgusting manner in the statements of the Israeli Minister of Finance uh, Betzalel Smotrich, who denied the existence of the Palestinian people and attempted to, to delegitimize their rights during a press conference in Paris. Um, and he also used the map of the so-called Greater Israel that includes the Palestinian territories, Jordan and parts of Syria. Hence, of course, Jordan's uh, reaction against it. 
Okay, so Jordan then uh, has, uh, their parliament has uh, voted to expel Israeli, uh, sorry, the Israeli ambassador. <laughs> yes, so basically now the Jordanian parliament um, votes to expel Israeli ambassador. Diplomatic crisis is brewing between Israel and several of its Arab partners, of course, due to the actions of Jewish supremacist officials. And again, if you move on. Um, so here you have, um, we in the House of Representatives call on the government to take effective measures towards the occupation government. Notice the language also. The occupation government's finance minister's use of a map of the so-called Israel that includes the borders of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the occupied Palestine, Palestinian territories. Um, the final decision to expel the Israeli envoy lies with the government and King Abdullah. During Wednesday's session, officials also displayed a map similar to the one used by Smotrich during a speech in Paris representing what he called Greater Israel. However, the map hung on the parliament floor bore the flag of Jordan and Palestine. So, you know, this far-right uh, supremacist government of Netanyahu is really ending up in hot water. And what does his son do? Yair Netanyahu, who is well known, as it says, for his incendiary comments, likens protesters against Netanyahu's policies, both in uh, Palestine and abroad, to the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, taking it one step further than Western demonization of protests like the Yellow Vest as being fascist, neo-Nazi, um, red-brown, etc. Quite extraordinary at the moment what's going on in Israel itself. And of course, the, the danger is that what, what is Netanyahu going to do? And that's very much what we're seeing um, with provocations on the border with Lebanon, with the continued aggression against uh, civilian infrastructure inside Syria, Netanyahu is going to be looking to export the war um, from internal to external. But of course, whoever he picks on, whether he goes for Lebanon, and that would mean Hezbollah, or whether he goes for Syria, he's going to have to take on both countries and also take into account countries like uh, Yemen. And one also has to raise the question now, what would the UAE and what would Jordan do under those circumstances? Or even Saudi Arabia. It's, it's getting very interesting right now in Syria. Um, uh, so this, sorry, go on. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, because it, th this is now the US, the US attack uh, in Syria yeah. near, near Deir ez -Zor. Um, And the, yeah. the timing of that seemed to be related to the, uh, the, the visit to UAE. Last night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, this was last night. Now, what it, what they're claiming it's in response to was um, a Syrian allied resistance attack on one of the um, U.S. military bases, which ended up in the death of, uh, let's say, a U.S. contractor. Many people are saying they were uh, CIA agents that were killed, or one was killed, one was injured. Uh, and I think three U.S. soldiers were injured in the attack yesterday afternoon around two o'clock. Um, they were taken for treatment, uh, or some of them were taken for treatment in Iraq. Um, and then the U.S. attack, which was obviously authorized by Biden, came later that evening and ended up with at least five casualties. They attacked a grain storage area and an agricultural um, center in uh, Derazor City itself. Um, and this was the statement put out from uh, CENTCOM, 
um, which I can't read terribly easily from the small print. Well, it says this so evening we responded to atta yeah. an attack on our forces that killed an American contractor and wounded our troops, another American contractor, uh, by striking facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, <laughs> we will always take all necessary measures to defend our people. Uh, the thoughts and prayers of U.S. Central Commander with the family of our contractor. Our troops remain in Syria to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS, uh, which benefits the security <laughs> and stability not only of Israel, of Syria, sorry, uh, but the entire region. Yeah, I mean, this is quite extraordinary um, because one, America, the U.S. troops should not be in Syria. They shouldn't be stealing Syrian oil. They shouldn't be backing, equipping, arming and sponsoring um, separatist groups or even ISIS and recent reports are showing that they are now equipping um, ISIS with improved hardware which is very probably coming through Ukraine, Turkey or even through um, other areas, Turkish, uh, sorry, Iraqi Kurdistan for example, into Syria to improve the performance of ISIS that are now being divided up into brigades of about 300 to carry out attacks against Russian and Syrian positions. Um, today, also, there was another uh, Syrian allied resistance attack against the Al-Omar oil field. So, you know, things are definitely hotting up in Syria and definitely getting rather interesting over the next few weeks. Uh, but, yeah, sorry, Patrick. What was interesting is that uh, this was a drone attack, uh, allegedly. Yeah. So the mm. U.S. is saying an Iranian drone attack killing a contractor. That's exactly a similar scenario to, you remember back in 2019-2020, uh, uh, when the, uh, one of the Hashid PMU units hit uh, and killed a U.S. contractor. It turned out to be, I guess, a translator or something, mm. uh, and they blamed it on uh, Katiba Hezbollah, one of the Hashid uh, PMU uh, brigades, and that started a chain of events um, with the retaliations and an attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and then the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, and then the Iranians hitting uh, two U.S. Mm -hmm. bases, and I think a, another facility in Iraqi Kurdistan. So a, a chain of events. So this is uh, very interesting. I, I, I'm going to say uh, that I think this is a signal of the beginning of the end of the U.S. Uh, encampment mm -hmm. in Syria. That's my personal opinion, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but that's what it feels like. Uh, okay, so uh, we've had uh, the uh, Assad visit to UAE. We've had Israel bombing again, US, uh, an a U.S. attack. Uh, but in the meantime, Syria and China uh, getting very close as well. So this was uh, Sana reporting this yesterday, and they're saying that uh, Syrian Prime Minister uh, Hussein Arnous met with the ambassador of the Republic of the People's Republic of China in Damascus uh, to discuss bilateral relations, various uh, areas of economic, political, strategic relations uh, that are uh, common to Syria and China. So uh, they're obviously talking about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and so on. Uh, and so, uh, uh, Vanessa, I thought this was a, a, an interesting development and also a good introduction to just remind people if if we knew in the first place uh, of the five seas project which which might be one of the contributing factors for the uh, syrian war in the first place oh absolutely i mean you know people it, it's almost people are talking about a, a multipolar world as if it's some new invention that's only happened post-covid and it, it, you know it's it's only something that's coming into the lexicon now but if we go back in history, and, and I'll demonstrate even further back in history to the Umayyad or dynasty, 
But President Assad 5Cs project, which started in 2004, was basically um, the, the vision of making Syria the trade, economic, energy, uh, food resource hub for for the world, basically, because it included, the Red Sea wasn't initially included, it was initially the 4C project, which then became the Red Sea, uh, sorry, the, the 5C project. So um, he launched it in 2004. The strategy, as I said, was to put Syria at the center of regional energy transportation, but also um, all other forms of trade globally. Um, Pre-2011, um, President Assad visited many countries and many agreements were drawn up between, for example, Lebanon, Turkey, Romania, Ukraine, um, Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan, also Armenia, and I believe Egypt can be included in that. It would include a gas pipeline from Iran, which we know was another slap in the face of, of the Western agenda in Syria when uh, Assad turned down the 2000 uh, proposal of a pipeline that was going to be um, controlled by Qatar and then obviously uh, under the control of the United States and turned it down in favor of the Iranian pipeline, which would be very much an alliance with Russia. Um, pipeline into Turkey linking with the planned Nabucco gas pipeline from Azerbaijan, the restoration of oil pipeline from northern Iraq to uh, Syria. Um, that, of course, followed on from um, the, the, the Western devastation of Iraq and, and the taking over of those pipelines largely by um, the uh, Iraqi Kurds. Um, huge project uh, was in the pipeline, sorry for the <laughs> pun, to build Syrian uh, infrastructure, roads, to improve ports, to improve railways to restore and put in new pipelines to fulfill the five Cs. And I've put their multipolar uh, vision. In 2009, um, President Assad explained his idea. Have I cut that slide off? Uh, yes, yes, sorry. Sorry, one second, I will, I will read it off here. Um, he explained his idea that once the economic space between Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran becomes integrated, we would link the Mediterranean, Caspian, Black Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Um, we aren't just important in the Middle East, he was saying. Once we link these forces, which then became five, we become the unavoidable intersection of the whole world in investment, transport, and more. So this Basically, was proposing an independent south-to-south -south economy and trade paradigm, um, control of resources and sovereignty. 2010, China's Silk Road strategy converged with Damascus also. So this is a very clear indication of that Syria was destabilized. But I also wanted to make the point that the Umayyad dynasty, um, one of the largest Muslim dynasties in 661-750, to um, when it was actually six rather than five seas, reaching as far as the Baltic Sea, where the Umayyad excelled as merchants rather than as politicians or military experts. So this was something that throughout history has been a vision of many of these, uh, I would even call, you know, the Assad dynasty, if you like. It's been a vision of these countries to create this multipolar world without 
this unipolar supremacist vision of the United States and the UK, for example. So this is not something new for these things now is the opportunity to, to, to bring to fruition the and we've lost Vanessa for now. Well, anyway, we, that, thank you for that, Vanessa. We'll, mo we'll move on. Right, look, if you uh, like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership very much needed and appreciated. We pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, including the UK Column website, of course, and also the UK Column Extracts website. Now let's uh, come back to the UK, uh, Patrick and, uh, well, Boris Johnson, uh, and Partygate. Back in the hot seat, Mike. So the clashes with MPs over Partygate denials. Who'd have thought this thing gets revived from the basement of Westminster, but yet Boris is uh, facing uh, a lot of accusations here about his lying and so forth. So this is interesting. And this follows on here. Let's go on and look at uh, this tweet here. This is the political editor of The Guardian, uh, uh, Pippa Crayar. And she's basically reposting her notes in, uh, in anticipation for, I believe, a documentary film that's coming up here. Fascinating insight on how Number 10 reacted to the initial query on Partygate here. So these are text messages or uh, communications here. There she is, uh, political editor of The Guardian here. And, but this is the one you want to pay attention to here, the last section here. And this is what it says. Jack Doyle, key thing is there was never any rules against workplace drinking, so we can say with confidence no rules were broken. Ignore the, quote, Xmas quiz BS. Uh, who cares? Just be robust, and they'll get bored. So they're, they're, they're saying, how are they going to sell these parties that they're having? They're booking their Christmas parties, but what if the press find out? How are they going to announce it? So they're doing the strategy here. But isn't that interesting, Mike? Because when we reported this at, at the, the time, at the time, you said that the, these weren't actually in violation of any rules for That's workplace, right. right? That's absolutely right. And so I'm still not clear. As far as I'm concerned, this looks more and more like distraction politics going on here because, uh, because Boris absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, has a legitimate... Uh, right to say there were no rules against Partygate. I think that's the case. So this wasn't illegal. So why did they why did they go through with the whole pantomime of it? Was it to create an exit strategy for Boris? That's what we said at the time because his dam he damaged his brand. The polling on him, he was hated by half the country, and this was a way to get him out with a sort of soft scandal, you know, like a little M MP's expenses type thing. Or yes. Not too bad. And so that what what did you say? This is what you said at the time, wasn't it? Well, no. The, well, I just wanted to highlight here, I mean, although uh, Boris perhaps is in a, a position where he uh, may not be absolutely bre breach the rules, the same could be said for Keir Starmer here if we put uh, this on screen. Uh, and uh, But if we look at the other people on this list, uh, Neil Ferguson, he absolutely did break the lockdown rules. Dr. Catherine Calderwood, uh, then the Scotland's chief medical officer, she broke the lockdown rules. Matt Hancock broke the lockdown rules. Dominic Cummings broke the lockdown rules. But then uh, Tobias Elwood, Robert Jenrick, Stephen Kinnock, uh, then Margaret Ferrier MP, Bob Seeley MP, they all broke lockdown rules as well. So the question then had to be asked at the time, um, did any of them believe uh, that there was actually a, a danger here that these uh, lockdown rules were uh, there to prevent some kind of transmission of a of a of a virus, or did they actually believe that uh, that 
the, there was no virus and there was no problem about transmission and so therefore they didn't need to worry about the lockdown rules. These were the questions at the time. Uh, but of course, we've got to remember, Patrick, uh, that uh, Boris, and if we're talking about whether he was uh, telling the truth or not, uh, Boris uh, claimed to have had a brush with death when he caught COVID in 2020. Indeed. So we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of his Easter resurrection. Uh, you remember when he left to go to the hospital and a week later, like Lazarus, rose on Easter Sunday to give this uh, stunning address to the public. This is just, let's take a look at what was said at the just, time. Just the first few seconds of what Turn he said Turn back the, the time. clock, ladies and gentlemen, and reimagine this whole scenario. Watch. Good afternoon. I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. It's hard to find words to express my debt. But before I come to that, I want to thank everyone in the entire UK for the effort and the sacrifice you have made and are making. When the sun is out and the kids are at home, when the whole natural world seems at its loveliest and the outdoors is so inviting, I can only imagine how tough it has been to follow the rules on social distancing. So there we go. It's so tough. I can only imagine how tough it must be for you plebs at home. So questions have arisen now in recent weeks. Um, and there's, this has been going on boiling under the surface for uh, the last year. Was Boris telling the truth about his brush with death? with COVID, right? And was he, did he fake his COVID illness here? And uh, we'll put this up on screen. This is an article by uh, Neil McRae. Um, did Boris Johnson fake his COVID uh, illness? And that's the big question here. So in this article features, this was what was going on at the time. Piers, Mor Piers Morgan took to Twitter and he <laughs> said, if you're not rooting for our prime minister tonight and willing to make uh, a waiting for him to make a speedy recovery, then you're a despicable human being, says Piers Morgan. He is very ill with a deadly virus, and his pregnant partner has also been sick. Incredibly worrying time for them and for the country. Come on, Boris, says Piers Morgan, the virtue signaler and uh, a chief whip of the COVID NHS campaign. Yes. So that's what he was saying here. So here we go. Look at this. At the time, Boris said, that he, the hospital doctors were ready to announce his death. So he claimed, and this is widely reported at the time, this is Politico here, that uh, they were preparing to announce his death. So Boris almost bought the farm within a seven-day period. At his age, how old was he, late late 50s um, or early 50s, mid-50s or something like that? So he's not elderly, right? Right. So and I guess he's in fairly good health. Um, so look, that's a, that was what was said at the time. How true is these claims? And that's what people are asking here. And so go back to here, and this is a statement by the author here, Neil McRae. Now, I've heard many pe people say that Johnson seemed a changed man when he returned to duties in Downing Street. Could that be because he had just told the biggest and boldest lie of his life? Did you notice that too? That was a different Boris, wasn't it? It was. When he came back, visibly different Boris. So, uh, and again, now, this is interesting. This is where it gets interesting. Where does this challenge come from? This is an organization called Stop Lying in Politics. It's run by investigative journalist 
Marcus J. Ball. He's got a documentary film coming up here, and he's, I believe he's working with or got material from the Guardian political editor, which we just showed, um, and maybe from uh, Isabella Oakshot as well with the Matt Hancock test. Our documentary film is an unsettling answer to this question, working hard on finishing it. I can't wait to see this film, Mike. Um, but uh, this is uh, his organization, Stop Lying to Politics. He also got a prosecution, but not a, a decision in his favor, taking Boris Johnson to court for lying over the claim of 350 million pounds per week going to the EU, remember during the Brexit and leave uh, and remain uh, battle? Yes. This was on the battle bus. So uh, they went to court. It didn't, this, the charge didn't stick, but he did get the case to court. It did make prosecution through. So Marcus J. Ball is serious about this. He's pursuing Boris on the COVID lie as well. So I don't know if he's going to get any joy on that. He's asked for a freedom of information request from an information minister from St. Thomas's Hospital to get all the information about the prime minister. How long was he there? Was he there? Uh, how sick was he? And so forth. So that's in the process right now. That could come out in the film. So the point is, uh, the point is here, did, did he lie over lockdown? Did he lie over lockdown parties? Were, were, were the lockdown parties legal or illegal? And so is he continuing to lie by the fact that he's not offering any kind of serious defense on it, other than I didn't mean to meet, mislead Parliament? And did he lie about his illness in the first place? And what kind of person is Boris Johnson? That seems to me what we're saying here. Well, he's always had a, a question over his credibility, but this also basically undercuts the whole left wing. And this is what Neil McRae says in this article, Mike, and this is the important part. The whole left wing labor uh, socialist argument is that Boris is guilty of mass murder because he didn't lock down soon enough, because he didn't recognize the danger of COVID soon enough. And the comments on herd immunity, you remember the first announcement mm. before they flip-flopped into lockdown, he said, we're going to pursue herd immunity. And there was immediate visceral backlash from the, the left and the media saying how inhumane of the Tories of Boris to call us like a herd of cattle and so forth. They're throwing us into the, uh, the, the fire, as it were, the funeral pyres. Yes. So that's the left-wing argument. Now, if he was basically, you know, completely lying about all this stuff and that the government was lying about the severity of COVID-19 and they claimed it was an infection fatality rate of 3.5% up to 5%, that's totally fake, mm. totally false. So, so that's the real problem with all of this. But you can see how the left is angled to say, no, lockdown harder, lockdown harder. So um, I like the way that this argument was constructed in this article, and I encourage people to go pick that up online. Okay, well, look, let's uh, finish with this story. Uh, so this is the uh, the genetic, genetic technology precision breeding bill is now an act as of today, or yesterday, I think, yesterday. Uh, this uh, is now an act, as we can see. So let's just remind ourselves what this is about. Uh, so first of all, it will remove plants and animals uh, in produced through precision that have been produced through precision breeding technologies from regulatory requirements applicable in England to the environmental release and marketing of GMOs. So uh, genetic edit, gene editing is no longer genetic modification. It's a separate thing. According to the government, it's going to introduce two new notification systems, one for precision bred organisms used for research processes and the other for marketing purposes. Uh, in other words, for us to buy and eat. Uh, the information collected will be published on a public rec uh, register on gov.uk. It's going to establish a proportionate regulatory system for precision-bred animals to ensure animal welfare is safeguarded. We will not be in introducing changes to the regulations for animals until this system is in place. 
uh, and it's going to establish a new science-based authorization process for food and feed products derived from using precision bred plants and animals. So what do they mean by precision bred plants and animals? They mean plants and animals that have been gene edited uh, in order to, for example, uh, make them more uh, uh, safer from, you know, or the, to reduce the use of pesticides. Or that basically, they're claiming that this is uh, taking what has up until now been a natural process of selective breeding uh, and so something which takes a long period of time and to use CRISPR and other gene editing technologies in order to shorten that time into you know months or a couple of years rather than generations to make it some kind of genetic change. So they're basically deregulating uh, GMO and gene well, editing. No, not or GMO. Or loos right. Loosening or redefining. So, so this is this is a GMO. key point. This is a key point. What they're saying is that they're claiming that this is not genetic modification because they're not introducing foreign genes from mm. uh, another or organism into the initial organism. Uh, they're editing the genes that the organism already has. This is not true uh, because, in fact, the process often includes bringing genes from uh, a foreign organism into the uh, organism that you're editing. So long as when you produce or when you provide that organism for marketing, when somebody wants to eat the product, that the foreign gene has been removed again. So, in other words, it's okay to use a foreign gene uh, in order to, uh, as part of the process of getting to your end point. So right? it's a semantic change. It's a semantic change. It, it's sophistry, typical. So, typical so let's, sophistry. Yes, let's remind ourselves what Joe Churchill said uh, in 2022. Uh, new genetic technologies could help us tackle some of the biggest challenges of our age around food security, climate change, and biodiversity lo loss. How about paying for farmers to, not to take farmers, uh, for, sorry, how about paying for farmers not to take land out of production? Would that not do something about food security rather than this? Unbelievable. Right. So let's just have a look at a couple of, uh, well, first of all, who is pushing this as hard as he possibly can? I don't know. Maybe Bill Gates? No. Who's on screen at the moment? Tony Blair. Ah. Tony Blair is pushing this. Gene editing and food production charting a way forward. This is something that the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change is very, very keen to promote. Uh, but let's look at some people that aren't so keen to promote it. Uh, here is uh, a paper on uh, Spring op Springer Open, uh, broadening the GMO risk assessment of in the EU for genome editing technologies in agriculture. And it says, however, there are numerous reports of unintended effects such as off-target effects, unintended on-target effects, and other unintended consequences arising from genome editing, summarized under the term genomic irregularities. Uh, we show that uh, genome editing techniques are able to produce a broad spectrum of novel traits that thus far were not possible to be attained using conventioning breeding techniques. So this is not about replicating what happens naturally through selective breeding. This is producing traits which uh, don't happen naturally through selective breeding. Uh, here is the national food expert slam the BBC for lies about genetic editing of foods. Uh, Dr. Michael Ant Antonio, uh, a genetics expert from King's College London School of Medicine said the BBC's reporting misrepresented the facts and was economic with the truth Truth at the best. This is where, it's, where it gets really disingenuous under the new bill, insertion of foreign DNA as part and parcel of the deregulation. That's not, not no longer a bill, it's an act of parliament now. He went on to say it's not as if uh, being deregulated is only gene edits that tweak or destroy the function of genes which are already there. It's also the insertion of foreign genetic material. They're basically deregulating all manner of genetic manipulations of crops, not just crops, animals as well. 
if we're looking at surprising uh, outcomes, uh, here's a report. Uh, scientists really surprised after gene editing experiment unexpectedly turned hamsters into hyper-aggressive bullies. That's not difficult to do. If you take that hamster and you put it in Westminster for a couple of weeks, it, you get the same outcome. Uh, so they used Syrian hamsters, they used CRISPR, uh, and they were expecting to reduce the aggression of the hamsters. Instead, they increased the uh, uh, aggression of the hamsters. So really, uh, you know, quite incredible that this is now passed as an act of parliament. It's now legal to do with barely a comment from anybody, any activists. I mean, so there have been some activists campaigning on this, but certainly nothing in the press. So just open, opening the floodgates for total uh, GMO massive abuse. And it's a gravy train, isn't it, Mike? There's companies behind this that are ready to sink their uh, teeth into huge contracts, huge markets and stuff like that. Do we actually need it? That's the question. Uh, well, no, we don't. We What's just, wrong with well, the we soil to... and food we have? I don't know. Precisely. We just need to get our farmers growing again. Uh, and uh, just to finish off here then, Sharon Davies uh, tweeting out this morning to thank you to the uh, Sebastian Coe and the World Athletics Authorities for standing up for female athletes across the world who are worthy of fair sport. This is because the World Athletics uh, regulator has now decided that trans athletes will not be allowed to take part in women's sport uh, anymore. Fantastic. That's a victory for common sense, isn't it? And let's just end with a feel-good story here. Uh, Greta Thunberg, that's St. Greta of the Rising Seas. She's been given an honorary doctorate here from the University of Helsinki in Finland. They're giving her a doctorate of theology. Isn't that amazing, Mike? Excellent. Considering that climatism is the new state global religion. So yes, only indeed. fitting that Greta gets a doctorate. She didn't have to go, have to go into any classes. That was the great thing. So that, that <laughs> she had time to do her campaigning and she doesn't have to you know, spend time studying and things like that. Yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. Congratulations, Greta. Greta. Yeah, well done. Dr. Greta. Dr. Greta. Dr. Greta, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's leave it there for today. Thank you to Vanessa and Patrick for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra. Uh, hope to see you then. Bye-bye.